0: This is an AMI podcast.
1: Welcome to the Triple Vision podcast, your window into the past, present and future of blindness in Canada. This podcast has been made possible by a generous contribution from T-Base Communications and the support of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. The mission of Triple Vision is to gather and document previously untold Canadian blindness narratives, one lived experience at a time, and to make our history accessible and universally known.
2: Hello, welcome to Triple Vision. I'm David Best, bringing you episode four of our exploration into the history of education for blind Canadians. So, Peter and Hannah, what have you got for us today? Hi, David. Today we are going to be speaking to Dan Majocomo,
1: who is the principal of W. Ross McDonald School and one of their former students. And we're going to be talking to him because W. Ross McDonald School is still existing today in this world of integration. They are still delivering educational services in Brantford, Ontario. So we want to find out a little bit more about what that looks like. So today we're going to get started by talking to uh, W. Ross Principal, Dan Majocomo.
3: We're here today with Dan Majocomo of the W. Ross McDonald School for the Blind. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Dan, on Triple Vision. Happy to be here. Can you just introduce yourself to our listeners, Dan?
0: Yeah. Uh, my name is Dan Maggiocomo, Principal of W. Ross McDonald School. I have been principal for about nine school years now, and uh, before that, for about a decade, I was a teacher and uh, even worked in the the lodging setting and, and other parts of the school as well.
3: Great. Well, it sounds like you're really familiar with the school and you have the honor, I guess, of being the principal for the school's 150th anniversary. Do
0: you want to tell us about that? Very exciting. Yeah, um, so proud uh, to be the principal at this time. We had a huge event in uh, just a few weeks back now. I guess, well, I guess about a month ago now, we had a big event celebrating the sort of beginning of the 150th year. Uh, May 1st, 1872, was the beginning of our school with just 11 students. Um, but we're, we're also celebrating the first full school year in September as well with dedications and, and things like that around the school, sort of reconnecting with uh, the history that uh, really all the students and the staff are very, very proud of.
3: Great. It's certainly been a long history, Um, as you say, going back all the way to 1872. What can you tell us about it? Because I understand you did some research uh, building up to this 150th anniversary.
0: Well, it's always been a passion of mine, the history of the school here. Um, When I taught history in the secondary program, it was always uh, something that I I used to uh, highlight different aspects of Canadian history over the last 100 years. But you know, specifically over the last uh, year, year and a half now, we've had classes where the students have taken a dive into uh, predominantly the oral histories of former students, mostly, but also some staff members as well. Some folks who go back Oh, 70 80 years even um, both as, as former students and former staff members and you know listening to you know how things were in those days um, you know the, the differences between you know these days and, and back then but also really uh, the things that are sim- similar as well, you know, there's there's much more continuity in history than I think we're all prepared to admit sometimes in, in the world. You know, um, we're not so different than the folks, you know, 60, 70 years ago. So, you know, I think for the students, it was just a massive learning experience. Staff learned. Um, we have these heritage minutes, uh, you know, that would come on every morning uh, and that the students would produce. Uh, we have a website where we've you know posted all these things. We're creating a photo book. The list goes on and on. So uh, everybody's involved.
3: Have the, has the nature of the students uh, changed over, well, certainly over the last 150 years, but in the last little while, I understand there's what, about 200 students in the school
0: right now? Um, there are about 160 students these days. Um, but yeah, absolutely. The, the, the student body has changed. The way that we deliver services has changed. And, and th- that change has been constant through the years. You know, If we go back to the 1890s to you know, maybe the 1930s, You had a lot of folks who uh, would would lose vision from preventable causes coming into the school later on, sometimes in their 20s. Um, You had uh, students who were both blind and who had low vision all through those years. And then, you know, moving on to the post-war era, era, it's more academic in focus, less vocational, which was, you know, pre-World War II. Um, It was uh, increasingly students who were um, totally blind until you know, really the 1970s, then that started to change. And we started to, again, have students with, uh, with low vision attend. These days, um, it's split about 50-50. 50% of our students are uh, blind and 50% of our students uh, have low vision. And they tend to come for perhaps, you know, five years or less. We have programs that are just a year in dur- duration or two years in duration. We have programs that are week-long, several times through the year. Um, we still run a robust high school program. Um, increasingly doing things like in STEM, the sciences and mathematics, um, where these students are really finding the opportunity here to participate fully in those types of programs. So, you know, there was a a time, I think, when the conception of the school is that we were going to become a school that was really serving students with additional needs only. Um, That period has passed and now we're a comprehensive school. Yes, we have students with all different types of needs, um, but I think the school now has the greatest range of learners Uh, that we've ever had. And that's absolutely to the school's benefit. So I, I, I like the way the school is right now, I have to say.
3: That that sounds great. Um, how do people or parents, I guess, and, and probably in consultation with their their kids, how do they make the decision to to send people to to W Ross? Now it sounds like if I have a particular need in STEM, for example, science mathematics, I'm not getting that in my my regular high school. That I might decide, or my parents might decide. Uh, to make the decision to send me to W. Ross for, for a particular reason. Is that kind of how
0: it goes, that you're kind of supporting a, a niche uh, need there? I think, yeah, you, you, you kind of hit on one sort of uh, aspect of of admissions for sure. The most uh, common reason is actually socio-emotional wellness. Um, students wanting the opportunity to be with their peers, uh, wanting to be in an environment where the focus is on the learning and not always about the uh, the challenges associated with learning. So having learning that is is geared directly towards them that's the big draw for the students. Um, it's also about the skills in the expanded core curriculum. Thinking about orientation mobility, independent living skills, compensatory access, technology, all those things. Being able to get those things to a really greater degree than you could even really have possible in the typical school setting. We're talking about a, a an operation that runs 24 hours a day, five days a week. Um, so those are those are big reasons and and yeah parents don't make the decision at the same age as they did at one time. Um, there's no um, either or idea you know it used to be that the feeling was well either I send my child to W Ross or I send them to a, a regular district school board setting. Now it's when might I send my child to W Ross versus when might mm-hmm. my child go to a district school board setting and it's far more collaborative with district school boards. Um, we work very closely with them deciding on what programs would be appropriate for these students again as opposed to that classic sort of decision that we always you know consider to be the, the big thing either or do I do this or do I-
3: Yeah, that's really interesting. This is the fourth interview we've done in terms of uh, schools for the blind in Canada. And each time the same theme has come up, that um, sort of balance between um, a, a setting, which was called and could be called, I guess, a segregated setting in which people are studying with their blind peers versus an integrated setting uh, with respect to um, their their sighted peers or, or mixed peers. It sounds like y- the school is trying to achieve that balance and in and, and a different way compared to the way it was before. It was you'd stay in a segregated setting for a number of years, and then when you were ready, you went off to an integrated setting. This seems to be a bit more of a flow, a back and forth between those two settings.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And, and it's really driven by... The, uh, the parents, the students in the district school board. So like when we use the term segregated setting, you know, we, we very cautiously sort of reject that, that term now, mm. because it's choice, you know, students who want to be here are here. Students who do not want to be here aren't here. And so, you know, we use the term specialized setting. We jokingly say it's the other S word, right? It's the specialized setting. And and students make that choice with their families to to come or not to come, to return, or, or whatever they'd like to do. And that's, I think, you know, in 2022, that's how it needs to be. You know, that's where we are as a society. That's what we, we want. We want these the, the, the ability to choose from really what is in Ontario, this very wide menu of services that you don't get in other provinces now. So we're still fortunate enough to have this this, this broad range. And the school, you're right, has has consciously done that. We've broadened the menu so that no one's, you know, based on what they're comfortable with as a family, for instance, no one's ever forced to give up on services. There's always something available to them, both from their district school board and from provincial demonstration schools, W. Ross McDonald School. It could be weekend programs, week-long programs, you know, all these different types of things that we do. And they flow into each other. You know, you have a student who comes for a week-long program throughout the year. They make the decision to come in grade nine. You know, they stay for high school, perhaps. Um, maybe, maybe some students say they did the week-long programs, and then they say, well, I'm going to go to my regular school, but I'm going to come for the Bridges post-secondary program um, at the end of um, my time in a regular high school setting so I can have that better transition to post-secondary.
3: What do you think is W.
0: Ross's greatest asset right now in terms of what it can deliver? I think that the, the the biggest thing, knowing what we know about children's mental health and their well-being, um, in all of our survey data, and we 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 keep survey data annually around um, all the markers of well-being. That's the big one, right? That is that is the big one. And because when you have well-being as a child, we know this. We talk about it in education. When you have that well-being, the education follows, right? You don't you don't educate a, a child properly, who is not feeling good about themselves. Is not feeling included in their environment. Who um, is conscious, constantly anxious about their learning environment? The the education falls by the wayside in those circumstances. So if a, if a child's going to be well served in terms of their wellness by coming to our environment, then the type of education we offer, which is Instruction that's specific to the needs of these children. You know, you're not converting a lesson meant for thirty fully sighted students. You're coming at things from that angle of I'm creating a lesson that is for uh, no or low vision uh, perspective, and and then again that expanded core curriculum piece. You know, daily O and M or independent living skills, all those things to really build those skills. And lastly, I think too, you know, I just had graduation last night. And all these students are going off to post-secondary, colleges and universities, and some of them are going into the workplace. And they've built up sort of a resiliency. They've gone away from home to a supportive environment. They've learned skills outside of the home um, that they can then take to other environments also outside of the home. Our students do very, very well in post-secondary as a rule. because, And, and I think a big part of it is that sort of resiliency and the skills that they...
3: So you must have seen some, some great success stories over the last few years.
0: Absolutely. I I take some of the statistics that we have. For me, the most you know important statistic that we have taken over the last years is a simple statement that the students are asked and they answer, you know, privately, it's it's confidential. I like the way I am. And Mm. every year, consistently, 93, 97% of our students say, I like the way I am. When you take that data from district the district school board setting for students on an IEP. That's somewhere in the 50%, a little bit less, a little bit over, depending on the board and the time or whatever. That's around 50%. That's significant. That tells us that something good is happening by the synthesis of all those things that I've spoken about here. That's a really important statistic. And the other is, is when we do the transition type programming that we do now, which frankly, we didn't always do that. I'm not going to suggest that it's always been you know, perfectly done, the, the transition programming that we've, we've done for our students. But over the last several years, we've introduced programs where you know, they, they're taking these steps into post-secondary and um, you know, having that opportunity to do college courses, etc., while they're still here in a supportive environment. Not one of them so far, when they've come out of those programs, has dropped out of post-secondary. When we look at the stats in the United States, it's about 40% dropout rate for people who are blind and partially sighted in the post-secondary setting. We don't have those stats for Canada, but my guess is it's probably not that far apart from what our U.S. counterparts experience. Those are really two important statistics that I think illustrate the work that we've done and that I'm really proud about. It doesn't mean that we don't have a lot of work to do. I'm not suggesting that, but um, it tells us that we're in the right direction.
3: Well, that's super, Dan. I want to thank you for telling our listeners about this story. I I don't think it's a story that a lot of people know about. I mean, obviously, as you said, the school has changed so much over its 150 years that uh, I'm not sure people are very familiar with this new model and this new way of uh, operating. So thanks very much for telling us about it today. My pleasure.
1: Here today with Alan Conway, a former student of W. Ross McDonald School. And um, he's gonna tell us his experiences at the school. So, Alan, could you introduce yourself to the listeners of Triple Vision?
4: Well, I'm Alan Conway. I now live in Gatineau, Quebec. I was born in Saskatoon, and that's where I would travel from when I was going to the school. I uh, worked for 30 years for the Government of Canada, uh, three years as a translator, and 27 as a conference interpreter, and I hold a master's degree in translation from the University of Montreal.
1: Tell us a little bit about your early schooling and how you feel that contributed to your lifetime success.
4: Well, uh, when I was Going to school in 1958, then called the Ontario School for the Blind, really represented the only option for blind children. I don't see at all, and there were some people, even who could see a bit, who really couldn't even function in the regular schools the way things worked at the time, partly because I think attitudes weren't maybe what they might have been, but there was also a matter of access to proper technology to function in those environments i think if the school contributed anything really to my uh, success in my job it's basically because of the academic education i got that i came to appreciate a little later on i think during my studies
1: were you one of those little kids that boarded a train in nowhere saskatchewan with a suitcase and hopes you got off in in toronto
4: yes i was part of you know groups like that we were escorted so we weren't alone uh, there were people for example when we went in when we left in the fall to go back uh often people from our provincial department of special education would travel with the group
1: do you remember your your first time arriving at the school
4: when i left saskatoon to go to brantford first time i remember we weren't able to leave from saskatoon we had to go to regina we all went under regina uh to spend the weekend with my grandparents before i left i remember i wasn't feeling very well i had a rather sore throat i really wasn't i I wasn't feeling well and i can imagine my mother wasn't too thrilled about the idea of me having to travel like that but uh she had two others she had to look after at home so obviously uh you know she had to entrust me to the people who were looking after the group and when i first got to the school, I think I was still sick and I ended up in the I ended up in the infirmary at the you know so I don't remember it was a little while after that I actually had my first day of class
1: so did you had anybody told you what to expect at the school? did you have any sort of ideas of what you might be walking into as a young student attending a, a school for the blind?
4: well, not. I mean I knew that I wasn't going to be with my brother and sister I knew that I was going to be with other blind children but that was really all I knew and I mean when I made this first trip I was 6 years old yeah so there's a lot you don't know and right. a, and a great deal you discover once you uh, you know once you get there
1: you were there for your entire education were you
4: uh yes i actually ended up having to repeat one year so i spent an extra year there but i uh, in that case, for example, you would go through the equivalent of grade 12 in Ontario, and then of course you would return home, and the province would figure out when you got back whether what classes you needed to pick up and that sort of thing.
1: So, as you went through the system there, did you feel that your academic needs were being met?
4: Well, I think academically, that they, certainly they, they, they did what they could. We had a very full academic program. I am not sure, for example, that I would have received the second language education I got uh, in a regular school. I don't know very much about the people, for example, who would have been teaching French in the high school where my brother and sister studied. But uh, there were two teachers, Mr. Vandeven, who taught Latin, although I'm absolutely sure he would have much preferred to teach French. And... Mrs. Voyacek, who was a, a graduate of um, the Sorbonne, which is probably one of the oldest universities in France. And I believe she ended up at our school with a doctorate in French literature of some kind. We were very fortunate to have her, and she loved uh, what she taught. And for various reasons, I was really quite interested in learning French, and she knew how to push all the right buttons.
1: So that your love of language is something that emerged during your time at the school?
4: Yes, except it goes back a little farther than that. My brother participated in a program called the Young Voyageur Program that was instituted to celebrate our centennial. And uh, so he went out to BC, but a couple of weeks after he came home, we had a fellow from Saint Paul, Saint Paul, come and stay with us. This is a little community outside Quebec City where English is rarely, if ever, spoken. And uh, I was really impressed by this fella's tenacity. Uh, if you asked him a question and if it took him five minutes, you got an answer. I had no idea when I got started. That I was, um, that I'd be heading for the sort of career that I had. Although, as a grade 10 student, I remember Mr. Vandevan telling me during a a discussion we were having in class about various things. And uh, he told me, he said, Alan, he said, you should get a master's degree in translation and become an interpreter. I had no idea what he was talking about. (laughs) And, uh, uh, but he planted the seed and uh, things went from there started learning French and realized I was very good at it. When I was 17, I participated in the same program my brother had been involved in, except that they sent me to uh, northwestern Quebec. So that was my first immersion experience. And I think I I don't think I would have been quite as well prepared for that if I hadn't uh, learned French in school in the first place. I'm not quite sure that I would have... uh, Arrived at the same sort of results coming out of a uh, coming out of a regular uh, school.
1: So academically, you were served really well. Um, what about socially? Did you benefit from that as well, and from being with your peers?
4: Oh, I think there are always benefits, you know, from being with your your peers. You make friends in environments like that where you're far away from home, and those contacts are important. Unfortunately, you know, there are things that happened in residential schools, you know, other residential schools, and some of them happened in our school, and you are all too well aware of the uh, class action suit that was brought against the government of Ontario over various things. Well, for example, uh, I came from Saskatchewan. There were people whose attitude uh, was basically that we were kind of charity cases and the uh, the Lord and the government of Ontario uh, so willed it that we had a place to go to school. What those people, I think, failed to realize was that our provinces paid and paid handsomely for us to go there. Mm-hmm. By the time I graduated, there were twenty-five of us from Saskatchewan, and the tu- tuition fee at the time, if I remember correctly, was six thousand five hundred dollars per student for a year. Yeah. That's
1: a hundred thousand dollars for you guys for a student.
4: So year. The, yeah. the the government of Ontario got a nice, you know, tidy sum from various provincial governments because we had students who came from as far west as Alberta, and I think we had maybe one or two students, anglophone students from Quebec, but there were certainly some difficult times involved in, in, in that sort of environment and all the other little adjustments that uh, six-year-old kids have to go through when they all of a sudden find themselves in dormitories with large numbers of um, uh, you know other people where you discover, among other things, that there are more than two types of people in the world not just people like you who can't see at all and other people who can see everything even the whole idea of you know how our meals were how our meals were served for example when i was 6 years old we got our big meal at noon and i got you know when i was at school at home that was at supper when my dad got home from work and so that was a really big change and i didn't really necessarily want to eat that much at noon so there were those kinds of adjustments and of course the relationships between the students and staff are are very different because although these people certainly would like you to feel as if they're replacing your parents on some other level, that isn't necessarily true. I, I think it's fair to say though that there were students who attended the school who were there and were in better situations because they were at the school than they might have been in if they'd stayed at home. I know I certainly would have appreciated a lot more contact, with, you know, with the rest of my family. Right. Because that certainly involved a few little adjustments when I got home and once I graduated and actually come back home. You know, we had there were sort of relationships in a way we had to sort of reestablish. Right. And, uh, I, you know, I came to understand that I didn't know, for example, my brother, and sister in quite the same way that I I thought I did.
1: Yeah, a lot of disconnects happen when you leave your family home, right?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Now, I think I was very lucky because um, I'm sure there are students who went through the school whose families may well have turned their backs on them when they graduated and all of a sudden, you know, were on their own. Mm-hmm. And the family maybe felt a little bit less connected to these people. I was, I knew things weren't quite the same, but I know that my family didn't uh, try to sort of completely isolate me in that sense. But I mean, when I was home, I had my sort of responsibilities, things that I had to do around the house, and uh, you know, I was expected to help, and uh, so I wasn't really completely shut out of those things. I had my little jobs to do around the house and it's the same way my brother and sister did.
1: Well, good for you for staying on that path. It, you know, it's, it's given you a really good life, right?
4: Oh, it has. I um, I did a job I absolutely loved and most people can't say that.
2: Thank you, Peter and Hannah. This has been a very interesting series on education and it would seem to me that we are... Shifting away from the controlled and prescriptive model of institutional education and more toward flexible, integrated with special education services.
3: Yeah, um, I'm glad you raised that, David. As we've gone through these four, pa- uh, those four podcasts on education, I've noticed a pattern. I wouldn't necessarily call what's happened with the other schools that we talked about sort of flexible and prescriptive definitely there was a a regime there definitely it was an institutionalized setting although what we what we heard in the three podcasts before this is that many of the students that we talked to uh, benefited from that of course, there may be some who um, have not, uh, but uh, the students that we talked to were, were positive about that. What I liked about the approach that W. Ross has taken, and it seems to have taken them a while to arrive at this approach, is that there is a, is, there is a great deal of flexibility there. Students come in, uh, students go out. It's not necessarily staying for all of their elementary to end of high school as um Dan Majacomo said it could be for a year, it could be for all of high school, and it could be just the bridging program that they have from high school to college and university. So very different approach, which leads us, Hannah, nicely into our next podcast.
1: Yeah, it does. Um, I, I really felt after talking to Dan that W. Ross really has pivoted well in, in the change of how we deliver our educational services to blind Canadians like it seems to be a really excellent resource now for parents and for blind Canadians um, in terms of their education you know options for education if they're lacking in some area there is a place to go to get uh, topped up again in that field but we're going to learn more in our next podcast we're going to visit Vancouver and Sean Marcellet at Blind Beginnings and in uh, Blind Beginnings, Sean is trying to sort of fill that social gap that sort of was identified in our uh, former podcasts about the, the social aspect that's missing in a lot of these kids' lives in, in schools. So join us next time on Triple Vision and uh, we'll see you soon.
2: Triple Vision is made possible by the generous support of T-Base Communications and the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. Triple Vision is produced in collaboration with Accessible Media Inc. AMI Audio. Jacob Szymanski is the technical producer and Andy Frank is the manager of AMI Audio. And finally, Thank you for joining us on this journey. If you would like to reach out to Triple Vision with questions and comments, you can reach us at triplevision21 at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at triplevision21.